and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. I am David Kern, and as always on Close Reads, I am joined by Angelina Stanford and Tim McIntosh. Happy New Year, guys. How's it going? Happy New Year, David. Is this the last? Is this, uh, you know, I'm at that weird moment after Christmas where I do not have any idea what day it is. So is this our last 2017 episode? This is the last episode of 2017, both for the listeners and for us recording. This is it. Wow. So, okay. Let, uh, in a minute. Did it. Finish line. Woo. We're going to, we're next, <laughs> next week. We're going to do, we're going to kick off 2018 with a kind of 2017 in review. So I've got some questions yeah. about the I'm show. I'm going to have to totally just make up a list. <laughs> Who would know? Uh, I've got, I read 172 books. Eat it. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot of books. So I'm going to, um, be. Uh, although Cindy Rollins did read 106 books, according to her Goodreads. Okay, we cannot use her as this any year kind of she gauge. Did? Yeah, she reads 100 she... books a year. Yeah, do not try to be Cindy Rollins. That's the path to insanity. Well, except in, in that, that is incredible. You should try to be like Cindy Rollins, but maybe not in that particular area. No, Cindy Rollins is a pathological liar about her book list. You can quote me on that. <laughs> <laughs> Calling out no, Cindy. I... I adore Cindy Rollins, and she will find that statement hilarious. So anybody who's listening, it's not me talking trash about my dear friend Cindy. She will find that utterly hilarious and will trash talk me right back. People don't know. Cindy Rollins is a baseball mom. That woman knows how to dish up some trash talk. She she, She raised seven boys or whatever it is. All of whom are like in the, they're like in the military or police officers. They're like Navy SEALs. So she knows how to she knows how to, to, to dish out some trash. Oh yeah, that's right. But, Don't let her Farrah Fawcett looks disarm you. <laughs> so, <laughs> so one of the things that I want to talk about next week, as we, on in our year in review, is the show in review. So be prepared for that. So that's a little teaser for next week's episode that we're going to record. Um, oh, okay. I literally can't remember the books we read. So we might have to have a little meeting. To <laughs> there remind weren't, me what there we- weren't that many. You can just look back on your, on, in the, uh, no, I'm in a time warp. I'm going to be like Japer Crow. Was that, was that in September? <laughs> <laughs> it's been so, that kind of year, David. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I think we, did we start with O'Connor last year? Maybe we did. I have, we'll have no to, idea. We'll have to look back. It sounds right. This episode, though, is a Q&A episode for Twelfth Night. So we're, there were a few questions in the thread related to reading in general, but I'm going to save those for the next week's podcast. So these questions we're going to keep primarily, or at least generally, to Twelfth Night, or at least to Shakespeare, Shakespeare in general. Uh, before we do that, though, I want to hear a little bit about your holidays. And so for those people who have been listening to this show for, I would say, I don't know, at least a month, they'll remember that we talked about Thanksgiving. And we talked about how Angelina does not like <laughs> Thanksgiving food, like the traditional American being, being like a Cajun. She doesn't like the rest of America. So um, what I want to know is Angelina, what do you make? What is your favorite food that is related to Christmas or that you make, you know, some give us, give us a food context for the Angelina Christmas. Okay, so the classic Angelina Christmas dish, as you know, because I brought it to you at the office, is my peanut butter fudge. Bam. All right, nice. That is That was very good, by the way. Oh, thank you for that. Tim, and I'm so sorry that you missed out on that, but Matt Bianco ate your portion. He did eat thank a lot you. of that. Yep. Thank you to Matt. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm sure Tim's hips are grateful. Um, <laughs> <Tim>. <laughs> they probably are. 
Tim, what about you? I don't you? know what? why you presume it was pure fat, which it totally was. But Because I've made fudge before. <laughs> um, so, uh, Tim, well, okay, let me, let me go back to Angelina for a second. Okay, so what what is the thing that you like about like Christmas dinner, though? Does your family, are you a ham family? Are you a turkey family? I assume not turkey. Are you, okay. or do you cook a goose? No to all of those. My favorite Christmas food is gumbo, but we decided not to do that this year because that would require me standing in the kitchen cooking all day, which because, I really do It just sounds like that's your favorite food in general because that's like, if oh, I ask oh, you what is, your favorite Easter is, food is, what's your favorite birthday food? What do you eat on President's Day? Columbia? Like it's gumbo. Oh, my favorite, oh, let's just put this on the record. My favorite food of all time is seafood gumbo. If I was on death row, this is what I would request. And yes, I've spent a lot of time thinking about that question. Don't judge me. Everybody should have, everybody should have a ready-made answer for what their last meal on earth would be everybody should have a death row menu i just feel like this is is a good i'm not going to be caught unprepared okay (laughs) yeah i mean no this is my funny story is that at one point in louisiana i read this article in the newspaper so it was like a long time ago and people printed newspapers so i was sitting on my dinosaur (laughs) reading a newspaper and there was an article about this prisoner at angola who had been on death row on the eve of his execution and had been pardoned, not pardoned, but given the stay, appeals stay, extension. Yeah. A stay, there you go. More times than any prisoner in the United States. And as a result, he had had more last suppers than anybody <laughs> in America. Huh. So the article is all about the different food he has requested. And it was an interview with the chef. Somebody really used to write a short story about this because it was fascinating because it started off with like this elaborate menu. And at the end, it was like chicken nuggets and French fries. Like he's just like <laughs> phoning it in now. <laughs> Top ramen. Yeah. I know. I'm like, just like, he's just Dude, like, just, eh. bring me, just bring me some hot water and a package. I'm good. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So what did you eat for wow, Christmas we dinner? We really though? derailed this. Okay. So I made a roast and yourself. we did potatoes. So I did a roast and we did nice. potatoes and asparagus nice. and cauliflower and a bunch of, bunch of things like that. Nice. That's, that's perfect. Sounds classic. Tim, what is your, uh, what is your favorite Christmas dinner and did you have that this year? Cause I know you were, you're not, you were not with your family this Christmas, were you? I wasn't, you guys, I didn't have a Christmas. Aww. I it, no, it's not a complaint. I just, you know, I was with my folks for Thanksgiving. I'm back in Seattle. Um, my friends that I'm staying with, you know, there's, I've got the writer's cottage, but my, in, in their backyard, you know, they were doing their own family stuff and they wanted me to come. And <laughs> this is, this is terrible. I stayed home for Christmas. What did you do all day? Tim, we're all going to I wrote and read all day. It, I mean, no, it was a good day. Don't get me wrong. It just wasn't Christmas. Yeah. Yeah. See, yeah. Immediately when you said you, you know, you, you didn't have Christmas and you didn't have a home, I'm like picturing, you know, a scene out of the little rascals and you're like in front of a big barrel and there's a flame and you got like a can of beans on a stick and you're just <laughs> gloves with the fingers cut like, off. Oh, exactly. I'm a total like United States uh, depression era eating out of a can. <laughs> that is, wow. that is Christmas is Tim in my head right now. <laughs> well, so, so now Tim, you're going to be getting like, you're going to get a flood of things in the mail. It's going to be like, I know people um, are going to be sending you turkeys in the mail. What are those? Red Don't send me turkeys just to be clear. What Listen, if that's what I, if that's what I got, I would, I would play, I would play it up every Christmas. I stayed home again this year. Did you, I had did no you, one. <laughs> did your family, um, did your parents send you anything? 
Did you did you open a gift on Christmas or did you at least do something with them before you went back to Seattle? No. No, Tim is the Scrooge. If you have <laughs> no, I'm not the Scrooge. No, I'm not the Scrooge. Admit it. You were counting gold coins all day, December twenty fifth. Admit it. <laughs> we're gonna. We're gonna. Tim, that is not what happened. We're gonna have to, Tim. We're gonna have to send My you. My imagination is so much better than your real life. You just need to go with it. <laughs> we're gonna have to send you. You have a, a very Dickensian sort of imagination. <laughs> I, I go to the dark places quickly. I have been told this often. <laughs> We're going to have to send Tim a stocking. It's it's cold enough across the country that like chocolate shouldn't melt if we send him a stocking. No, yeah, no, it'll be fine. We'll so, okay. One, we'll one more. The, pry the rest of my fudge out of Matt Bianco's hands and stick <laughs> it in Tim's stocking. One, one more question then before we, before we get back to uh, 12th night. So Tim, I'll go start with you first. What was your favorite? Like what's your nostalgic Christmas gift memory? Oh, the, was it the I got red, a rider BB gun or mine was our, our grandfather. So we didn't have, we were not poor growing up, but we didn't, you know, we didn't have a ton of excess money. We were living on a pastor's salary. Right. Right. Our grandparents. This explains um, the gold coin counting. Right. Right. That's why I'm a hoarder now. Um, my grandparents lived in my mom's mom and dad lived in California they moved in with us because my grandfather had gone blind. He had a stroke to his optic nerve when I was seven Hmm. and he went blind. And my grandmother had contracted tuberculosis. She was like a lifelong smoker. I don't know if that has anything to do with tuberculosis. Is this a Steinbeck novel or did you live in a Steinbeck novel? This is amazing. (laughs) Um, My grandmother died shortly after they moved in with us. Um, and grandpa lived with us for probably, I guess, gosh, I'd say maybe six, seven years before he passed away. But he, you know, he was very fond of spoiling his grandchildren. We had no objections to that. And my, I can't remember how old I was, but I got this Schwinn bicycle that was I went from like this purple and yellow huffy bicycle, which all of my friends were, they just felt pity and scorn for me <laughs> because of the huff. I mean, the huffy weighed about like 1,600 pounds. Oh, it had all these like the thick, uh, you know, it's like, it's huffy because it's indestructible. But what makes it indestructible is all of the weight and welding and everything is thick. There's just nothing sleek. There's nothing like so it's not romantic it is not it's like <laughs> it's like bicycling a tank it's and all my my buddies had really nice bikes they you know they spent some money on their bikes and so i went from kind of like being in last place with regards to my bicycles to first place grandpa got me a schwinn sting it was trimmed out in red everything else was chrome and i remember he he bought it and i knew that he was getting it for me and mom and dad said okay here's the deal we're buying it today this is like a month before christmas and you can ride it today but then it's going to the basement and you're, you can't mess with it again until christmas and i was like sure fine so I remember, I think it was my brother and I, maybe it was my sister and I, we went out in our uh, driveway 
on the one night that I had my Schwinn sting before it went in the basement for a month. And I was determined to learn how to do a bunny hop. Do you guys know what a, do you guys, did you no. call them bunny hops? No, I didn't call okay. them a bunny hop. It's basically, yeah, yeah. you just get both wheels off the ground at the same time without any sort of ramp or anything. It's, okay. it's kind of a tricky move. And I was determined I was going to learn how to bunny hop because when you have a huffy, yeah, that's not huffies right. don't bunny hop. You don't bunny hop a tank. So I learned, I was so determined, and I learned how to do a bunny hop on my new Schwinn sting, and then it went in the basement for a month. But that was, that's the best <laughs> present I've ever gotten. <laughs> Angela, it went in the just to show you how dark my imagination is, as Tim was telling us, this was the end I was anticipating. And then it got left out and stolen. And so that was the one night I had my Schwinn bike. I really thought I was getting the tissues. Tim, I was ready for this he satisfyingly sad, dark, melodramatic ending. And you didn't give it to me. And then you're like, it was awesome. God, he what did, a letdown. He didn't grow up in Eugene, though, Angelina. I didn't. Oh, my goodness. Eugene is like the bicycle thief capital of the world. That's not an exaggeration. Like, you leave it out for five minutes, that thing is gone. It is gone. <laughs> so, Angelina, what about you? Do you have a nostalgic gift that you remember? Yeah, you know, as soon fondly? as you asked this question, I felt a panic attack coming on. Like, <laughs> it's like, oh, he's asking me about my childhood. Now I have the shakes. So I'm just going to randomly pick something because, you know, I don't like questions like favorite and best and happy. <laughs> Was there a nostalgia factor for anything, though? Like if someone mentioned... Oh, gosh. No, I don't have nostalgia either. That's a whole other separate issue. I'm just going <laughs> to randomly pick a Christmas, and it'll be related to Tim's Christmas because he just gave me the lead-in for that. So I think I might have been six. No, I would have been younger than that. I must have been – I'm trying to remember what house we lived in. I was probably five. But anyway, for, for, so for that year, for Christmas, I got um, a super awesome purple bike with a sparkly purple banana seat, streamers. Whoa. Yeah, I was rocking it. Mm. But then I didn't learn how to ride it. So it was just kind of around. Oh, yeah, that, that makes it difficult. <laughs> <laughs> it was just in the basement. Well, we didn't have basements. We live in Louisiana. Yeah. If you yeah. dig two inches into the ground, you're going to hit water. So we don't have basements. Ooh. That's why the I houses are above ground. They're all above ground. But anyhow. Yeah. So, David, what did you get, David? Tell us about the time you got a bike. Well, I never got a bike. <laughs> Um, said I'm calling Andrew right now. It's not too late. Well, I don't think I don't have any recollection of getting a bike for Christmas. So there's two things that have always stood out for me. Uh, both of them from my grandparents. Um, my grandma grew up in Texas, so she was very much a fan of all things cowboy. Um, and we watched, we would watch Roy Rogers and the Lone Ranger and Bonanza and all those. Shows. Like those are the things my brother and I loved, and we liked playing cowboys. But when I was probably seven, seven, I'm guessing and he was five or six, we got like the whole get up. So we opened it up and there was, you know, the, I might've been six and five, something like that. But, um, there was the, you know, the, the cat guns that had the things where you would, they would like smoke when you pulled the triggers. Mm -hmm. Oh and, yeah. Um, and it came with a holster in the belt and then, it, then we had like a vest and a hat and like these, uh, the, the the plastic rifles that came with it. So we had the whole the whole outfit. That was a big, that was a big one, and I I vividly remember opening those, um and and how exciting that was. And then when we were, <clears throat> was probably fourteen, fourteen or fifteen, somewhere in that range, um 
we were there. We were up in Wisconsin for Christmas because we'd moved away at that point. And my brother and I were given uh, tickets to go to a Packers game because being in Green Bay. So that was our first experience with that. So they dropped us off the next morning um, and gave us these tickets. And we got to go to see the Packers and the Vikings play. And it was like 10 degrees outside. It was everything you'd want in a Wisconsin Christmas you know, Packers game. So that was, those were the two things that's like, those tickets are, I think I'm on the waiting list for season tickets and I'll, my grandkids might get them. So they're very hard to come by. So that was a big deal. Um, so those were, those were the two nostalgia, the nostalgia gifts that when I think about like, what are the things I want to get my kids? Like those are the experiences, you know, you think about the little things that were like kind of blow your six-year-old mind. (laughs) See, and my motto is just, I keep trying to do the opposite of everything that was ever done for me. It has served me well. We're just two extremes here. <laughs> well, that's why I read books, because that's the only way I can have happy memories. Anyway, next. <laughs> <laughs> and even then, my book memories are like, and did your bike get stolen? And are you eating beans out of it? Well, that's because you were reading Dickens. <laughs> I was about to say it. Or which came first? It's like, did the Dickens come first or did the okay, so I've really imagination this. No, I have legitimately wondered this as I think back about the books I obsessively read as a child. David Copperfield was one of them. I was really young the first time I read that. I've read that a lot. And uh, of course, the Arabian Nights, which I've talked before, which are very dark, the darkest of the fairy tales. So I've wondered, you know, did those stories shape me or did I like them so much because I was already like that? Nurture, nature, and nurture. Nature or nurture. Well, this we may not be solving that this, one today. <laughs> this may not be the place to solve that. This particular, this particular. No. Um, but there are a lot of questions that we should answer by other people. <laughs> oh, if we have to, I'm just um, going to toss them all to Tim while I eat fudge. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of questions on here about um, uh, feste. In particular, I do have some things I want to say about the ending, so that I forgot to say last time. So don't let me forget. Okay, so that's actually where I want to start. So there is a question here, um, um, about whether the ending has a satisfying resolution. This comes from Sarah, Sarah Montgomery. So thanks for listening, Sarah. Um, and she says, um, in the last episode, there was discussion about whether or not the unstable characters like Orsino and Viola uh, had truly changed or whether they would end up changing their minds and moving on with the next fancy they have. This seems not to resolve the topsy-turvy theme. So is Twelfth Night satisfying and does it have a satisfying resolution? And we did touch on this a little bit, but the idea that yeah. um, whether or not they change their minds resolves the topsy-turvy theme is interesting. Uh, so, Angelina, do you have any thoughts on that? Or are we kicking that over to Tim? No, no, I can, I can, I can tie that into some talk about. So, okay, so just to review what we said last time was that uh, at the, at the end of this uh, of the play, it's 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 still very open ended about whether or not they've achieved any kind of growth. Uh, and so, a couple of things that I I did not mention in the last episode is as we've been talking about the disguise motif in stories, and I talked about how the disguise motif is always related to the self knowledge theme, right? So um, your true self is hidden, and then when the disguise comes off, the true self is revealed, and it's always tied to this self knowledge. So we have a few a few interesting twists. On, on that idea in this particular play. Okay, one is that um, the one character <clears throat> in this play who is in disguise is the only one who knows herself. So that's totally different. And the other characters don't know themselves and the kinds of disguises they're in are not literal disguises. They're just metaphorical disguises that you know their true selves are hidden from, 
from their own eyes. Um, so there's that. The other thing is the way that this <clears throat> disguise motif is typically resolved in a play is that there's a, in a story rather, um, is there's, there's typically two parts to it. One is the disguise comes off. But before that, there's always some kind of proof of identity moment. And it can be a variety of things. So for example, in the Odyssey, the proof of identity moment is the scar, right? <clears throat> the nurse sees a scar. Now uh, Odysseus' identity has been proven. Sometimes it'll be birth tokens, um, a blanket or a signet ring. Um, sometimes it's a letter. But there's always something <clears throat> that proves the identity of the person. And that is usually the moment that that's the impetus then for the disguise coming off and, and, the, and the true person being revealed. You do have that proof of identity in this story. That's with the sea captain. The sea captain is who they're going to appeal to to prove that Viola is who she says she is because he has her clothes. What's different about this is that he's not in the play. He doesn't show up and present the proof of identity and then Viola takes off her disguise. All of that, <clears throat> the, the proof of identity is offstage and the taking off the disguise is offstage. It's alluded to as it's possibly going to happen, but when the play ends, the disguise is not removed. She is still in disguise. Her identity is alluded to, but not proven definitively. <clears throat> Excuse me. All of which I think um, supports this idea that it's an intentionally ambiguous ending, right? Um, has anybody reached self-knowledge or not? Yeah. I don't think that that makes for the ending being not resolved. Um, I, I think an intentionally ambiguous ending is a resolution. It does. It reaches stasis. He's just raising questions about, um, whether or not any real change has happened. So it's not unsatisfying to me, especially because the clown speech at the end, he's throwing it out to the audience basically to decide, you know, are we going to, are we going to still just be children about all of this? Or are we going to grow into adulthood? Which is really the question about the characters as well. So for me, it's mm -hmm. not, uns we've talked about this before mm -hmm. on the show, you know, does every, does every loose thread have to be tied up neatly at the end for it right. to be, satisfying ending and yeah, yeah. you know sometimes it's not tied together at the end because the author is terrible and has just blown it <laughs> that is right. not the case here right this is somebody who knows the form knows what he's doing and, and thematically gives us the ending that resolves the thematic story here so the ending is just as topsy-turvy as the rest of it and and what i what i find interesting is that the clown throws it onto the audience basically you yeah. guys decide what, right. what are we going to be here? Are we going to stay like children or are we going to grow up? So to me, it, it, it's very satisfying because he, he puts it into this kind of large scale cultural conversation, which, you know, I, I think we all agree is one of the things that art does is gets us looking at ourselves, right? Um, often not that directly where somebody's pointing at the audience saying, hey, you guy in the third row, are you going to man up or what? But <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I often feel that way after I engage with art that I just got slapped across the face. But there you go. Uh I do find it fascinating that Orsino doesn't even refer to Viola by Viola. Oh, I know. So she is um, complete, and he, and he, and and so some critics make a big deal and try to say this is a homosexual subtext, right? That he is still with her. He has fallen in love with her as a man, quote unquote. Um, I don't think that that's what's going on. I, I think that the, that it's the disguise motif, and that he's 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 not penetrating to who she really is. He's just taken the idea of being in love with being in love right and just mm -hmm. transferred from one object to yeah. another and the fact right he's not even looking at the real person just emphasizes that he's not really in love with the person plus he's also going for a humor i mean that would be it would be funny oh, yeah. on stage like as you're oh, watching yeah, yeah. it to 
to, to see him jumping from one person to the next and you knowing who she is, but him not calling her by the correct name. Um, there is something I suppose there about, um, the, the, uh, the revealing, like revealing more about yourself, like the intimacy of that as a relationship grows. Like I, I've heard people write about that before. So Tim, I'm going to turn this over to you because the idea of satisfaction at the end of a story is an interesting one. Yeah. Um, because it, it can be looked at from a number of sort of different angles. There's, there's the idea that a story itself can be sort of inherently satisfying, structurally satisfying, um, with mm-hmm. that, even if the threads aren't resolved, but that can still lead to some lack of satisfaction emotionally for particular readers. Do you, yeah. do, you do you find um, Twelfth Night to be either satisfying or unsatisfying in either of these areas? Um, does this, does the stasis that hangs there that we're kind of suspended in, does that, does that lead you to be unsatisfied in, in either of those ways? I, I don't find it to be emotionally satisfying. I find it to be kind of intellectually uh, satisfying to be sort of intellectually satisfying for the reasons that Angelina articulated much better than I would have. I think that it ends ambiguously. I think I like how the clown kind of turns to us and kind of, it's almost like he asks a question, how is this going to go for them? And we have to resolve it, you know, because it's not, the resolution is not really in the play. Mm-hmm. And I find that very intellectually satisfying. I, emotionally, I don't, I don't find it a terribly satisfying play. I, I, I find a lot of his other comedies. I am, I am one for Shakespeare's dramas. I like the dark tragedies the most. So, um, cause everyone dies. Those and are the ones that are stasis once everyone's dead. Oh, I just, I, <laughs> well, we would, we would have to change tracks to talk about why I like them so much, but, um, I, I find just, some of I the other comedies for making me seem like less of a freak. Now that you've admitted you love the tragedies. <laughs> I'm teasing. I don't know that loving Hamlet makes one a freak. It might make one sane, actually. Well, we can debate that later. No, <laughs> I'm totally kidding. I love the tragedy. So yeah, I find I find it intellectually as a as a puzzle, as a piece of theater craft. I think it's wonderful to behold. But I didn't finish Twelfth Night, and I didn't weep. I didn't laugh. I didn't. You know, it was just emotionally. I just. It just feels a little bit distant. I totally agree with that. And I think we talked about that last time. Like, do you have to deeply identify with the characters to experience catharsis? And right. I don't think, and I think distance is the right word here. And I think it's intentional. I don't think it's a mm-hmm. failure or a flaw. I think it's intentional yeah. um, because they're supposed to be superficial characters. But I agree. You know, we're not rooting yeah. for these couples. I don't see myself in any of these characters and at the end feel like I understand myself better like I do with so many of the other um, heroines in, in Shakespeare that I identify with. And it, uh, so, so, no, I can't really see anybody being like, ah, oh, yeah, I'm an Orsino. And I just really felt like <laughs> I came through at the end and I just really understand myself so much better now. Yeah. <laughs> In a lot of ways, I was thinking about this a couple of days ago. Twelfth Night feels to me like almost like a fable in a way, where like it, ah, the, yeah. characters, the characters are sort of stock in some ways. I don't know if that's the right word yeah. exactly, but then at the end, the 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 clown or feste or whatever, he kind of comes out and says, "So what do you think of this now? What's this going to mean to you now?" 
Um, and like, there's this lesson we're supposed to get out of it, that the characters are, um, they almost, they feel like they play on the archetypes so heavily that, that they don't feel like individuals at times. Maybe Viola is the that's only That's a great one. insight, David. Whether no, I think that's absolutely right. Whether it's Orsino or Toby. Right. They, and we talked before like about stock. how it's got a, um, I'm sorry. You know, you're Finish fine. Well, I was just gonna say like Toby, for example, feels like a lesser version, a stock version or an archetypal version of say, um. Uh, who's the who's the guy in Henry, in the in the Henry the Fourth and Henry the Fifth plays? Falstaff. Falstaff. Yeah, Falstaff. like a stock archetypal, just kind of lesser version of that. Um, right. And no, Orsino true. plays like feels like a lesser version of Romeo. Um, so it feels like a fable. Go ahead, Angelina. Sorry, I was. Well, I was, was going to say that I think you're I think you're absolutely right, and we've talked before about there's some very intentional fairy tale qualities here, um, particularly the fact that the place is named Illyria, which sounds like Elysium. And, you know, when Viola says, where am I? Am I in Elysium? And it's like, no, you're in Illyria. And, and some of the stuff I've read suggests, which I, and I agree with, suggests that it's a, it's a false Elysium. Like, this is a false heaven. This is a false fairy tale. So it's like the and, good place. Like the show. Have you guys watched that show? Oh, well, I haven't seen that, but oh, okay. I haven't seen it either. Oh, man. Okay, go watch the show and you'll hear what it is. Never mind. <laughs> It's a good show. You yes, David, that's a brilliant insight. No, I'm just, that's what I'll be thinking. 30, 28 minutes. I'm actually, I'm actually shocked that you have not seen that, Angelina. You love that show, I think. Well, it's on my list. I hear everybody talking about it, but I just have not been watching any TV at all. Except so the I'm, office I'm, with your daughter. Well, that's just on a continual loop, and I don't count that as watching <laughs> research, David. <laughs> oh, right, I got it. Okay. Anyway, sorry, go ahead. I... I, but, but anyway, yeah, it, it is it is like a fairy tale. And with fairy tales, you expect a certain superficial archetypal characters. I mean, that's just what you expect. The the emphasis is going to be a lot more on the structure. Yeah. yeah. You know what's you know what's interesting is that you know Shakespeare's the dating of Shakespeare's plays, like when he wrote them, is notoriously difficult. But there's kind of critical academic consensus about when such and such a play was written and his fantasies they're sometimes called fantasies sometimes called romances happen almost at the very end of his career so the classic one is the tempest mm-hmm. very fantastical the winter's tale also very fantastical the winter's tale it concludes with um hermione who we believe has died she either comes back to life or has been hidden away in some unnamed place for years and years and years. So these type of turns tend to happen um, in the romances late in Shakespeare's career. And this, I completely agree with you, David. Twelfth Night reads like a romance of the late Shakespeare authorship, except there's nothing really magical Like the Tempest is full of magic. It's Prospero can weave spells and just all these wonderful, amazing things happen. It's almost like Twelfth Night is that type of play, but if you could just pull the magic out of it. Stock characters, silly situations, lots of romance, you know, male-female romance. Um, And I wonder if it was kind of like almost like sort of a warm-up for the late period romances which includes Cymbeline which mm, a lot of people don't know Cymbeline because it's not a really great play but Winter's Tale and Tempest are the best known of the romances and they're delightful they're just delightful plays 
let's I'm trying to remember what I read recently um, about that that supports what you're saying so I might I might really butcher this paraphrase but essentially this guy thought where Twelfth Night came chronologically in the canon um, which was kind of in the middle right um, yeah that it, it was almost a synthesis of all the plays and the archetypes and the structure and the ideas that had come before. And he just huh. like, tosses them all together and then throws it out there to the audience of what are we going to make with this? And then kind of launches on to the second half of his writing career, which ends up being a little bit different. Yeah. Yeah. Almost the first half of Shakespeare's plays are almost all comedies or histories. So histories like the Henry the Henry the Sixth trilogy, uh, the Taming of the Shrew, being one of the comedies. Titus Andronicus is kind of an outlier horror film kind of play, but then maybe a little bit more than halfway through his career, it becomes comedies and tragedies, and all of the great, the most of his best known plays, Macbeth, Hamlet, Lear. Those are all in the period right after, ironically, not ironically enough, after the death of his son. Um, and they take about seven years. And most of the really great tragedies all fall in that period. And then after that, as he's moving toward retirement, it's And I think the comics romances. take on a real twist at that time as well, because Taming of the Shrew is much more of a farce. It's, it's much more farce. Well, it is a farce. And it's certainly much, much lighter than say much ado about nothing and some of the other mm. ones that come later. I mean, taming of the, and, I mean, Petruchio and Cater are definitely a precursor to Benedict and Beatrice, but it's much yeah. more forcible. What's and fairy tale? I, I mean, if you take my Taming of the Shoe online class, which many of our listeners have. You know that I argue that the Taming of the Shoe is a fairy tale. It's also a fairy tale. So, um, and again, it's why we see more of these stock situations, and we can make sense of them when we understand that they're stock situations. Hmm. Let's jump to another question here. Um, Emily Upchurch, thank you for listening, Emily. She asks, does Feste know or guess that Viola isn't who she pretends to be? In other words, I saw that question online. It's I a did great too, one. And I don't know the answer. Tim, I'm going to punt this one. <laughs> oh, it's gonna... great because I don't know the answer either. What well, do you I'm think, gonna, David? I, I want to finish the question here. I'm going to read the whole thing. Oh, um, yeah. So, does Feste know or guess that Viola isn't who she pretends to be? In other words, does he see through Cesario's? disguise quote Cesaros and she says in reading the play I thought several times that some of his lines to her indicated that he suspected her and my husband and I agreed while watching the Trevor Nunn film that Ben Kingsley played it that way now I do agree with that last part and I was the thinking about that he seems the way Kingsley plays the character he does seem to suspect her so neither of you have any thoughts on this then right I've not seen any of the um, performances, so I don't do you, know. Just you don't, you just don't going by any... the text, I did not. I did not think that. And reading the scholarly essays that I did, I didn't run across anything that suggested that. I mean, that doesn't mean it's not true. I just didn't run across it. I, I ran across a lot of people talking about the, you know, the clown um, sees through Olivia's pretense of her mourning and what's really going on there. And so, I mean, I, I would agree that Feste is a character who sees through things. I would totally agree with that interpretation. Whether or not he saw through Viola, I don't know. I, think I haven't that, really thought about it. I think that um, in a lot of ways, Feste is meant to be sort of a um, representative of the audience, of the reader. Mm. And so he has, mm. he, he begins to see things or identify things, um, or at least 
intuit things that the audience might intuit as they're watching. Like he seems to, I don't want to say he, it's almost like he's an amalgam for all of the different perspectives of the audience because he's tying things together in a way. And so what I did was I went back and well, Tim, do you have any thoughts on this? Well, I, before I jump, I think it's one of those things. I think it's, I, I think it's one of those, uh, actor's discretion because the the one that the Kenneth Branagh version that I saw Festa was played by a wonderful actor Anton Lesser and he does not play the recognition okay he, he kind of avoids it so this is this is interesting because I like that that they chose different perspectives because it means that it's not necessarily 100% yeah, and clear weirdly locked. enough I feel like both of those interpretations work Mm -hmm. Like depending what it is that you want that character to do, how you're using that character, right. if that makes sense. So what I did is I went back to find scenes where the two of them are in in a scene, just the two of them, where where it's oh, yeah. like he could be oh okay, you know he could be um, intuiting something or observing something or making a, they have a that jab scene at her. together, right? Where he talks about using words to confuse. Is that yeah, so Viola that's, or Lydia? So, that's nope, them? that's that's three point one. And the last thing he says to her, um, as they're doing their little thing on wordplay, there he says, uh, "This is lines fifty six and and fifty seven and fifty eight of three point one. He says, uh, "My lady is within, sir. I will constir to them whence you come." And then he says, "Who you are and what you would are out of my welkin. I might say element, but the word is overworn." And then he leaves. So you know. <laughs> the idea that who you are and who you are and what you would are out of my welkin. I mean, there is at least an implication that he is perhaps suspicious in some way in the scene. And well, yeah. also the, what, what you would ties into the subtitle, the what you will. Yeah. I just thought the same thing, Angelina ties into the title. Okay. So let's, okay. Then we don't have a definitive answer for your question, Emily, but thanks for asking. Uh, but well, I um, think it's a valid interpretation. I mean, if we yeah. get all literary about it and be like, I think that's, I think that's a legitimate way to read it. And I think you could also not read it that way. Yeah. Uh, well, so, okay. You mentioned the title. You mentioned how that tie in there to the title with the what you would. Um, what you will, what you would. So then let's go to Lauren Scott's question. And we do would not have a ton of time. So I want to make sure we touch as many of these as we can. But I think this ties in. Lauren, uh, thanks for listening, Lauren. She mentions that we briefly discussed the title on the show for Act 5. And she says her husband and her listened to the play a while, a second time while driving home after Christmas travels yesterday, and that she noticed the phrase, what she will was used once in Act 1, Scene 5. When Cesario is calling Olivia for the first time, Olivia says to Malvolio, go you Malvolio, if it be a suit from the Count, I am sick or not at home, what you will to dismiss it. Then she says, on the face of it, this doesn't strike me as all that significant, but is, it is the only time the... Um, is it the only time the phrase is used in the play? What do you think about that? It does not, maybe it's the only time it's used in that specific phrasing, perhaps. Um, but again, we're seeing it here in 3.1. So let's tie those things together then. Um, let's talk a little bit more about the subtitle. Um, is the subtitle, is Shakespeare, is he asking, is he telling the audience with the subtitle, what you will, to interpret the play however they want? Or is this meant to be something more about the characters and the way they interact with each other? Okay, so if it's is it my turn? <laughs> Go for it. I left it open on purpose. I was I was waiting for someone to jump. <laughs> well, I, I figured Tim's I, eating. 
So I'm going to take my uh, chance. Yeah, while Tim, Tim is generally eating on the show. Yes. He's like, he's like, he's like Brad. I heard his mic go mute. I knew that was, this is my time to jump in. <laughs> Tim, Tim is the, well, Brad, the Brad Pitt of our show. He's always eating. That's right. That's right. <laughs> wow. I, yeah, just, I just, okay. Also, Don't he's, inc- he's incredibly handsome. He's, he's incredibly handsome and he's real mid forties. <laughs> that's right all these things fit Brad Pitt is in his 50s <laughs> is well, he really that's yes not, that's not that far from mid 40s whoa 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 <laughs> relative I mean <laughs> relatively speaking thinking yeah okay all right back to the question at hand what what you will David what you will <laughs> about, about what decade you're in <laughs> All right, so Shakespeare's the master of the language and the master of the pun, and he is also punning here with his title. So what you will means a lot of things. Um, so will, of course, means like what is your action? What will you decide to do? What will you act? Um, and, and the will was a big part of the Elizabethan understanding of how you know the human soul was ordered. You had um, the reason, the will, and the passions, and they all had to be in properly ordered way for a person to be able to function properly but they had a few different ways of understanding the will whereas we tend to think of i guess are we almost like freudian and how we think of the will like you know we have desires and the will is you know the acting the choice the action that we make that's the will it's not exactly the way that an elizabethan would have looked at it so will could mean that it could mean the act um, but it also can mean, and see, and this, this fits in with this topsy-turvy thing that he's got going on here. Will can also mean irrational desire, um, usually physical passion, and it's uncontrolled by judgment. So what you will then is also a pun for what people will, what, what, what frightening, uncontrollable passion or urge will overtake them and, and they will run off with. Okay. That is a terrific explanation of so that subtitle just really does work for the kind of ambiguous conclusion mm-hmm. of the play right. are they going to is be it, carried away by this impulse these, these emotions right. are they going to have the will to act and control them yeah wow wow that was great angelina oh thank you it was all right <laughs> <laughs> i'm just messing with you just messing with you so, okay, so so you think that he's basically, I mean, okay, do, you, do either of you know how this was titled on a playbill, say? Like, would they have, would that title have been shown up, like when the guy's on the stage before, he's like, welcome to Twelfth Night or What You Will. Is he, um, is he saying all that or is it just Twelfth Night? Did What You Will come in later when they printed the folio? Do, do either of you know anything about that? I do not. I know it's in the folio. Okay. Right. And I, I think I think it's li- they're listed side by side. So as I think in a lot of our versions the title would be Twelfth Night underneath in parentheses or you know in a smaller font or what you will. So side by side. Now mine has the same font though. Same font side by side. In the version that I have in the in huh. the side. I love the idea of it like being all one line and it's just Twelfth Night or what you will. And it's like Shakespeare's like twelfth night or whatever the heck you want to call it. Yeah, like a shrug right yeah. in the title. Well, <laughs> and that is kind of one of the things that's going on, because it because it is this kind of madcap, topsy turvy thing. 
go on. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Like, so it's almost like he's intentionally being like, oh, it's Twelfth Night or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> and, exactly. Please just whatever. And it literally, and there's, you know, there's no direct tie in to, so, <laughs> to Twelfth and Night. The and the ending of the play is also like, and they lived happily ever after or whatever. Yeah, it's not like. <laughs> It's, and it's not like this it's like, like a place. dissertation is coming on here. This is my dissertation or whatever. It's about 12th and 8. It's not like this play even over the 12 days of Christmas or whatever. So I love the idea of someone's like, the, the, the theater company comes to Shakespeare and they're like, okay, so Epiphany's coming up and all that. So we think you should write a play for the 12 days of Christmas. And we would like to promote it built around that. And Shakespeare's like, all right, you're going to pay me. So he goes out and writes the play. It has nothing to do with that. He puts Twelfth Night on the title. And then he's just like, or what? He's just like <laughs> completely is subverting the expectations of the people who hired him because he's Shakespeare and he does stuff like that. See, That's well, I think what, here's a funny thing about Shakespeare. I think he hits the mark for his commissions so, so well. I mean, Macbeth has the three weird sisters who are clearly witches in it. So that and was the that was the that, Halloween episode. It was the Halloween episode, but it was written when when James was on the throne, and James had written King James had written his own book on yes, witchcraft. Had. Yes, he had. There are so many things in the witches' speeches that are like word for word out of James's book. And all, he was like totally being this sycophant to James through that entire play, which cracks me up. Well, this is a perfect segue to another question here. Perfect. Um, and so thank Tim, you just set that on a T for me, and I was able to just swing. Um, Carla Montoya asks, well, it says, Shakespeare seems to have written several strong heroines like Viola. Do you think this was a nod to Queen Elizabeth I? Was he giving her a character she could connect with? So that might tie into the, uh, you know, connecting Macbeth with James and all these, you know, knowing who's in power is useful at times in your life. So yeah. well, uh, they were patrons. I mean, James was the sponsor of Shakespeare's so company. Do you, do you guys think then that characters like Viola, these strong female characters, um, was, was it that he was trying to do something specifically on Queen Elizabeth's behalf? Was it that there was a spirit sort of like a sort of something in the air by having a strong female leader? Um, and a woman with, with that much power? Um, or was it that Shakespeare was um, a progressive, so to speak? Or was it all three? I mean, was, there, was it just a combination of all three things? All right, Tim, you get first crack at this. She wants to rebuke. I'm going to throw, throw another explanation into it. The other explanation is a lot more, it has a lot more to do with the actual actors. So what I think is, and this, this applies more to some of the really classic heroines of Shakespeare. Uh, I shouldn't call them heroines. Like some of the most notorious females in Shakespeare's play. Juliet and Cleopatra um, and so forth? No, I'm thinking, well, Cleopatra, Lady yes. Lady Macbeth. I'm thinking Lady Macbeth. And I'm thinking... Ophelia? Uh, the two sisters in Lear, the two bad sisters in Lear, Reagan and Goneril. I think that what happened was that Shakespeare, so remember who's playing these females, it's going to be men, but not really men. It's going to be boys and not really boys, but like probably, well, they're going to be boys probably before their voices break. Mm -hmm. 
And so I think what he had when he wrote at least those female roles, and those are incredible female roles. I think he had an incredible young male actor whose voice hadn't broken. And I think, and they end, those female roles end almost immediately. Yeah, I mean, it, which is not to say that he doesn't write other great female roles. He does, but not as powerful and center stage as somebody like like not giving him any lines or as Cleopatra. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're usually the female cast is usually split among four. So, okay, could Viola be that young male actor? It's possible. It's so possible. Practical I, concerns here is what you're suggesting. Yeah, yeah. I completely agree. That's also why, by the way, that some of the plays will just have this random song. He was just showcasing that the actor had a good high voice. And I don't think he's, I don't think he's beyond appealing to having a female ruler on the throne. No, that's, that would be absolutely Shakespeare. So you're suggesting that he's not as progressive as we all think he's just practical. Well, Why does I it think have to he be is. one or the other? I'm, I'm just, I'm just causing <laughs> trouble. <laughs> no, I mean, I think we talked about the, the famous speech by Shylock in Merchant of Venice. I mean, that to me is the clearest evidence that there are many other reasons to think so. I think Shakespeare is very progressive. And I mean that as a compliment, just so everybody knows oh, where I am yes, on that. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I think he has a view that, I think he has like a deep sense of the equality of different ethnicities. I think he has a deep sense of the equality between the genders. I think he's also a realist. He's not, he's not, um, he's not pretending that like, gender differences don't exist or anything like that. Um, but yeah, I think I think Shakespeare is a progressive, and I think that you could say that playing that he because well, which came first? Now, was it because he was appealing to Elizabeth on the throne that those um, features get highlighted, or was it because he believed in those things and Elizabeth gave him an opportunity to showcase, let's say, gender equality? Who knows? Mm -hmm. Who knows? But my hunch is that kind of in his heart of hearts, I think he, yeah, he believed in equality. I agree with all of that. I agree with everything you said. And uh, to me, that's the, the brilliance of Shakespeare is that he's always operating on so many levels. You know, what has always been so fascinating to me is that Shakespeare can be so ahead of his time and yet so popular in his own time. He saw a man of his time and not a man of his time all at the yeah. same time. And that is so incredibly rare. It's so much more um, usual in literature that someone dies penniless and unknown in their own life. And a hundred years later, people were like, wow, this was amazing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and then we embrace it. But he was wildly popular. I mean, this was your Saturday afternoon entertainment for a penny. It, it, he's the summer blockbuster film, but he's also the Indie Art House Academy Award winner guy. He's, yeah. he's all of that at the same time. So, so yes, I often think that Shakespeare almost hugs the line of propaganda and how much he panders to his king and queen. But well, he does it at the same Well, yes, and, and they're paying the bills. But he all but but he does it in this uh, he does it in this way that he can also play with it. It's almost like Yeah. He puts you a little bit off balance and then he can say all this other stuff, right? Because on the surface he's really and he it's not just I don't gosh. 
feel like I have to choose my words so carefully. He's not a propagandist. And he, he does believe in order. And order is very important in, in, the, in the world of the Elizabethan, especially at the time that he's writing. I mean, first of all, Elizabeth's whole reign was extremely difficult and fraught with potential disorder and chaos. And she's always trying to maintain order. And then the fact of uh, the problem of her succession and that she has no heir, that was an extremely tense moment in the history of England. And so obviously order's a big deal. And sh- and for Shakespeare himself, order's a big deal. And he always upholds order. But, but within that, he's, what am I trying to say? That he can challenge notions about gender and race and even religion um, in a way that doesn't threaten the social order. So he's a progressive without being what? Without being a revolutionary. He doesn't come out there yeah. and say, burn it all down. He, he somehow manages to call into question all these complicated things and uphold the basic social hierarchy all at the same time. Hmm. So I guess that makes him more of a reformer than a revolutionary. Yeah. He, he values the fundamental traditions or the fundamental yeah. fundamental tradition yes. which is working, but he still um, sees its flaws or sees areas that can improve. Or at least I think the, the, the most important thing about Shakespeare, as far as some of this goes, is just that he believes in his characters and he kind oh, of yeah. lets them, he, he's not trying to, I mean, he's a, he's an artist. He's a writer. He's trying to create a world and create actions and things like that. But he also kind of lets his characters uh, live their character life, if that makes sense. Like he, he believes in, in, in their kind of autonomous existence in a way, which is we're getting into some, you know, weird Josh Gibbs artistic metaphysical stuff that we can talk about on a different show. But um, the fact that he values the characters in and of themselves empowers empowers them i think which then of course in turns mm-hmm. in turn empowers the actors who pr- portray them for centuries you know for centuries on yes and i think because he does uphold the traditions and and the general structure of society it gives him uh, what am i trying to say it gives him a a more authoritative and powerful place from which he can then critique it because he's not just this burn it all down revolutionary he's someone who loves it right I, mm-hmm. I, I love England I love this world but here's some things that maybe I don't love so much and we could maybe talk about this mm-hmm. but he doesn't do it in this way that thre- threatened anybody because I mean you know they they closed down the playhouses on occasion yeah. <laughs> you, know, you, you had to be careful you you come out yeah. too much revolutionary yeah. and then you're done so he's not he, nobody's perceiving him as a threat yeah yeah that's a great point which he's is why some of, of the oh go ahead Tim he's on the um, <laughs> these words, progressive. The fact that I had to kind of like clarify is because these are words that are they're very loaded today. Right. Um, that's why I hesitated there to use it. Absolutely. So I think he is on. So if you know the history of letters very well or the history of political thought, there's kind of a, a split, and the split is kind of it's about two authors. Karl Marx is the revolutionary. Karl Marx is the one that he wants to burn it all down, start over from scratch, a total revolution. And then Edmund Burke is the other. Edmund Burke, we would call him, oh gosh, we're like getting into these words that I'm not sure I, I can apply to exactly. him. He's a, he's a reformer. He's like, he recognizes, does Edmund Burke, that society must always be in a state of change. And... Sometimes those changes bring bad things. Sometimes those things bring good things. But Burke does not want to burn it all down. He wants to hold on to the best of traditions and reform the worst of traditionalism. 
Whereas Marx is just like, let's just rip it down. Let's start from the ground and let's, let's build it all up again. And my hunch, this is, this is just, I don't know. Go for it. My hunch is that Shakespeare would be on the Burke side. Now, everybody, of course, wants to, I'm now going to qualify that by saying everybody wants Shakespeare to be on their team. And there's so much material that you can kind of put him on any team that you want to. But as I read him, I think he is more on that, he he does seem to favor, the realist in him makes me think that he would say burning it all down is a, is going to cost more lives than it saves. So I would put him in the Burke camp. Now we're talking totally anachronistically. Burke okay. is 200 years after Shakespeare. But those Marx and Burke are kind of like the two figureheads for radical, radical revolution Marx or reform and progress through reform by holding on to the traditions. And that would be Burke. Oh, I completely agree. I mean, when I read Shakespeare, he has such a deep concern for the the anarchy and chaos that can be unleashed if there's too much disorder. If you if you knock down the king, if you if you kill the king, the whole world's going to fall apart, right? So he's yeah. he's not a burn it all down guy. He would be terrified of that. That would unleash chaos that would destroy everyone in Shakespeare's mind and in Elizabethan's mind. Um, but what's so interesting about Shakespeare and about what you just said is that we tend to get caught up in this modern dichotomy as if our only choices are burn it all down or preserve it all. And what I hear you saying, and I believe it to be true, is that Shakespeare is in the middle there, right? Like, can't we sort through the wreckage and say, this is the good, true tradition. This is the true, the beautiful, and the good. This is where we've kind of lost our way. And so let's critique that. Right. Right. But, But we don't have to start from scratch because there is a true and a good and a beautiful that is the foundation. Um, which is what I always try to encourage. The, that's why I call myself the classical education anarchist, because I say I try to live in the tension between burn it all down and preserve it all. That you know they're both wrong. You, you gotta you gotta find that middle way. Not everything old is worth preserving. You know, like slavery. Yeah. Like let's get yeah. rid of that. <laughs> but can we get rid of that in a way that doesn't burn down the whole world? That's where it gets yeah. tricky. I think if if Shakespeare was on the radical side, then Julius Caesar would have ended after act three, but he carries it on for two more acts. And the two more acts are a lot of chaos, a lot of chaos because Brutus and Cassius killed the king and he, or killed the Caesar who had vaulting ambition and Shakespeare seems to think like, yeah, yeah, he probably did have too much ambition. Yeah, he did probably betray the Republic. But this is what it costs. This is what it costs to do away with him, to assassinate him. Yes. And, so I and- think he shows both sides of that, both sides of like, man, this is what Shakespeare, excuse me, this is what Caesar was doing when he um, took over and ended the Republic and basically kind of like crowned himself Caesar. This is what happened because of that. And here's what happened when, in the aftermath of uh, him being assassinated. It's, it was bloody and awful. No, that's exactly, that's exactly right. And that's again, points to the brilliance of Shakespeare that he, he can dim both sides, right? And so, yes, Julius Caesar was becoming a tyrant, but one of the things that, that Shakespeare shows is that when Brutus kills Caesar, he takes on the ghost of Caesar. He becomes the thing that he tried to stop. In other words, violence begets violence. The, the, the revolutionaries also always end up worse tyrants than the one that they killed. That's, and that's not a revolutionary message. 
Yeah. <laughs> we there's really a, got a, off the original question there. <laughs> <laughs> good stuff. I have I have this uh, this great quote. This is David. We can edit this out if you want to. We, I mean, I'm I feel like I'm the one who's responsible for taking us so far afield. But why would I? This edit issue this out? is I don't know because it's so I, I'm very self conscious about like teetering too close to political issues because this is not a political show and i'm glad that it's not a political show um but there's this great quote yeah say it anyway and logan will pretend to edit it out and then won't (laughs) no i i'm not even gonna tell him to find the spot and then edit it out (laughs) okay hold on i'm looking up a i'm looking up a quote i should have it memorized it's about the, the way that the church has acted over the years. I hope that we can edit out this long. Angelina, do you want to do some Jeopardy music for us? Do, 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 do. Now you have to put in a form of a question now. What is the speech I'm trying to remember? <laughs> Just Google it. I can't. Here it is. Woo. I'm going to, we got to leave that in because it's going to be, there's going to be so much. Um, it's going to be so satisfying for the listeners when Tim finally has the moment where he discovers he finds it. Don't leave it in. No, it's, it's awful. And I, and I can't even find it. Basically it's, it's a quote by a church historian named Rowan Baton. The quotes by Rowan Baton. Uh, it's about the early church. And he just kind of observes that through the centuries, when the government tended to be too strong, then the church tended to act like a disruptor. And when the church, or excuse me, when a society was slipping into chaos, then the church tended to act like a peacemaker. And I think the fact that, well, I'm just saying, the church, at least in, in the church in the United States for the last 50 years, has leaned toward conservatism very strongly at least people that are like really um that have a high view of the scriptures that are not in a high liturgy church meaning protestants they tend to side with the conservatives and think that it's the conservatives that's kind of like more in league with the church but that's that's just a very small sampling of world history the church has played many different roles in society over the centuries and I love the quote from Bainton. It acts as a disruptor when the government is too strong, and it acts as a peacemaker when society is slipping into chaos. And I think it's especially interesting because I think both of those things are kind of alive and well now. We have a very, very strong government, and we also seem to be kind of sliding toward chaos at the same time. And I wonder sometimes if that's part of what makes this issue so thorny is that Christians who have a strong sense of kind of like the tradition of the church and um, the veracity of the scriptures, I think they see both of those things going on at the same time. And unfortunately, there's not a place for them to say both are happening. The church can respond in two ways at once. You have to like, instead, you have to kind of pick, are you a conservative are you progressive? Are you progressive? Are you conservative? You can't be both. What I hear Angelina saying, what I'm saying also is 
that's a false dichotomy. That's just, and it's, and it can be a kind of crippling false dichotomy. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So what does this have to do with 12th night? Well, going nothing. back to Shakespeare, <laughs> this is why everybody wants to put him in his camp yeah. instead right, of just right. letting it be, right? So yeah. one of my, one of my pet, pet peeves is to, is to see various people try to take Shakespeare and, and use him to put his face on the banner of whatever their political cause is, you know, mm-hmm. and, and like, okay, so Tim's going to say something controversial. I'll say something controversial too. So Shakespeare wrote some sonnets that, um, if you don't understand Elizabethan metaphor, and I've talked about this on the show before, how, how important it, you have to understand what the words mean to the people who wrote them and heard them first, right? Not what the words mean to us now, right? Mm-hmm. And one of the Elizabethan metaphors is the idea of masculine and feminine love. And what they mean by that is agape versus eros, right? And so many, many Shakespeare sonnets will go through the various types of love and will end up saying agape love is the best love, right? That the love of action versus the romantic love. Mm. that's not a terribly revolutionary idea right but because he uses male and female as a metaphor people will get told oh this is a this is a gay thing this is he's coming out and saying man on man love is the best love and they'll do this whole homosexual reading of the sonnets which really gets me upset because it's it's not understanding what the words mean right what they meant when he wrote them and what they would have meant to the original audience but even if you don't understand what the metaphor means you just have to know about Shakespeare. He's not a burn it all down revolutionary. So he's not going to be saying that. He's not going to be like, nobody's going to come out and write a sonnet loudly proclaiming, um, you know, same sex love is the best and highest love that there is for a human being. No one's going to write that in the 1500s. It's not going to happen. They're going to go to jail. Yeah. So whatever clear and obvious meaning you think is in this poem, you're wrong. Well, someone might, but someone with Shakespeare's stature wouldn't, I think. Is yeah, what... it would, that would be a career-ending play. I mean, you'd hide it, and maybe it came out after your death, but you're not going to put it in your collections of sonnets to the dark lady. Yeah. But wouldn't that, okay, to play devil's advocate now, Angelina, wouldn't those academics who say this is a metaphor for homosexual love... Oh, they don't think wouldn't... it's a metaphor. They think he's... They, they, don't, they don't read it as a metaphor. When he comes at the end of the sonnet and says, the best love is masculine love, that's the love I want, they're reading it not as a metaphor. They're saying he, the male poet, is saying he wants male love. Agreed. Wouldn't they also say that he tactically knew that he couldn't be overt about this? Oh, that he's so being So he was subversive. planting the seed for future generations to understand. They could make that case if only they did and but they don't. They just <laughs> they just ignore that there's any possible metaphorical. Like they don't they they just skip the whole agape eros thing altogether. Mm-hmm. And they just they read the poem with as if it has no metaphor. Well, you're because- right though, Tim. You could you could make that case about him being mm-hmm. secret right. versus He's he's yeah. using the metaphors to hide What's kind of on the But you'd have to start off by acknowledging there's a metaphor. Hiding in plain sight. Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, because we're out of time, I'm going to go to the last question that I'm going to get to here. Um, We just really went crazy on that Queen Elizabeth. Well, you never know where a question's going to take this. I know. That's true. Thanks a lot, Tim. Uh, (laughs) My fault. Okay. Last last question for this show, then. I think we can tackle this somewhat quickly. Um, I'll just hear some quick. We'll make these your final thoughts. Um, This is from Katie Patton. Thanks for listening, Katie. 
And she says, I want to hear more about Feste. Y'all referred to him as the clown a few times. She says that sounds a bit off to her rather than the fool. And then there's some conversation underneath her post about that. So we won't address that right now. That's generally an issue of the different versions and stuff like that. But she says, mm-hmm. um, he is rather melancholy in the midst of his wittiness. So what do you think of his role in the play? And is this sort of character found in any other uh, any of Shakespeare's other plays? Huck is much more clownish, for example, from Midsummer Night's Dream. He's more than comic relief. He gets the literal last word in the play, hence he gets the last question in this podcast. Um, he seems important, but he has no substantial relationship with anyone else. A, that's her, E-H, question mark, that's her question. So can you answer the question, A? A? <laughs> Okay, that's actually, that's not a short question. That's not a short answer. I will try to give a short answer. I called him the clown because that's what Shakespeare called him in the dramatis personae. Um, he's the clown. Um, but he's playing the role of the fool. Right. Um, and, and clown doesn't necessarily have a connotation of comic relief. And it, it, he is a different sort of fool. We have talked about that before in this play in that he, he is... Um, everybody's topsy-turvy manic festive and he's the opposite he's melancholy he's sad he's also been absent from their houses which i think has thematic significance when he shows up they say where have you been mm-hmm. so he's been he's been gone and so this you know there's a whole idea of what's going on there did he leave has he come back because now he's come back as this voice and this seer uh so so he He's also extreme, hyper aware of his role as the fool. So the fool is meant to turn everything inside out. And as he's twisting it around, the truth comes out and he's aware that. And so he has these speeches, as we alluded to earlier, where he's talking about the wordplay and he's extremely self-reflective about it. I'm going to pun and that's going to be a disguise. And now no one can know what I'm talking about because I'm confusing you on purpose with my words. That's very, that is what a fool does, but they don't usually say that that's what they're doing. So he's, he's hyper aware, which means giving him the last word means he's very aware of his role here of being, being the one to, you know, put it all out there. Yeah. So that's my attempt at a short answer to a not short answerable question. Thanks, David. <laughs> Go ahead, Tim, finish it off. Well, I, I just, I think I completely agree. I think Angelina is right. Um, Shakespeare called him the clown. Wait, or did you say the other way around? No, he Shakespeare calls him the called clown. him the clown, well, right? That's true, but, but the so, role, the recurring role, is the role of the fool. There, there. Every version is does do different things within the dramatis personae or the names of the actors. Oh, they, okay. So, like, mine does not call him a fool or a clown. It calls him a jester. Um, oh. Other ones call him clowns, and certain ones call him fools. So it seems to be. I don't see the question is we could go back to the original and like try to figure out like what is the full what is the uh, folio. Well, I'm using a first folio, and he is the clown here. So. Yeah, my guess is that that probably is what it what it is, and I think they refer to him throughout as both of those things, don't they? Don't other characters refer to him as both? See, mine just says enter clown. It doesn't even say festive. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, that's mine does. Mine actually does too. So it calls him a jester at one point, and then in the in the actual lines that he's referred to as a clown. So yeah, that's actually a great point. Duh, should have looked there. <laughs> Finish your I thought, think he, Tim. I think he wrote it for an actor whose last name was Kent K E N T, who was the longtime clown slash fool of Shakespeare's company. And that, that character shows up, that type of character shows up obviously in so many of Shakespeare's plays. Um, 
they think that they hired another clown late in Shakespeare's career when Kent was getting older. Because it's, a, I mean, that play, you don't see it in Twelfth Night, but that, that role of the fool is oftentimes a very physical role, juggling and, and leaping all around. Um, it's kind of interesting because I recall the fool, the, I think the best known fool in Shakespeare's work is Lear's fool. Mm-hmm. And even in Lear's Fool, which would have been late in Kent's life, he seems like he, and there might even be a reference to him being as old as Lear is. And Lear is old enough that he's losing his mind. So I even wonder if Shakespeare is writing that. That's kind of like a a send-off role for Kent. But they had, at that point, probably already brought on a new fool slash clown. Didn't you tell us last year at the end of the year episode that you had read a book? about all the different actors who played in these original plays? Yeah, it's called, uh, it's called The Best Actors in the World. It, if you're a Shakespeare fanboy, it's worth a read. It's not a terribly exciting read. It's just, it's a classic academic treatise on a very small question, but I just happen to find that question really thrilling and exciting. And so I, I, read, I read through it, but it's probably 300 pages of research on what actors played what roles in what play. And I just want to say this uh, to, to maybe help our audience understand, like, what is, what's the role of the fool? So the fool is the, it's, it's, he's funny and he's silly, but he, he says the truth. And he can get away mm-hmm. with saying things that no one else can say mm-hmm. because he's the fool. And we have the exact same thing in our own culture with our stand-up comedians, right? Stand-up comedians can say things no one else can say. And they can get away with it because it's comedy. It's a joke. But they're absolutely giving social commentary. But, and, and each of the comedians have a different style. Some of them are going to be very over-the-top, silly, physical, and, and that's how they'll come across. And then others are going to be much more like Feste. There are plenty of stand-up comics who do that very melancholy, dry, deadpan, I'm so depressed, but I'm going to tell you this joke, but I'm super depressed. And it's very, usually very insightful. And tells you the truth about the world and yourself so it's the same sort of idea they're the but the fool but the fool tells the truth and they can see usually what no one else can see and they can get away with it the fool can tell lear things that no one else can tell trust and he does yes he does he does it more oh man it's so great i oh david one day one day maybe we'll do lear oh i love oh, we that can do play. Lear one day we can do lear one day we could um, do a whole that year. might be a hard one to stretch over five episodes or six episodes because man that's a dense hard play yes it is it's, Ooh, very it's long. a dense hard play it's very long for me it's the densest next to coriolanus as far as the language goes well that might be a reason to make it to stretch it over five or 12 <laughs> 15. I mean, just the idea of Porter 20? and Lear would, would, I mean, I could talk about that for a long, long, long time. Well, we and need to wrap. Just been in a ray here. <laughs> we need to wrap this up. Um, thank you both for 2017 on Close Reads. This has been a good year. Um, talked a lot about a lot of very interesting books. Got a lot of strong opinions. Um, got a lot of great comments from the, uh, from the audience. I, I'm, I'm, I think I think close reads hit hit a new level in 2017, so that gives us something to live up to and and try to exceed in 2018. 
Um, when did we start doing the once a week episodes? It felt like that gave us oh, just a lot of momentum. It helped me to stay much more focused on the books when we I were. I think it was. Early. Yeah. Yeah, I'll have to go back and check. I think it was early in 2017. That was a good move. And Facebook uh, memories just showed me that this week was the one year anniversary of the creation of our Facebook group. No really? kidding. Huh. Yeah, which has really grown and and become a very unexpected community. Yeah, that's I my Facebook page now. I basically it gives me nobody else's feeds, but <laughs> but close reads. That's all I get now, which is absolutely fine with me. Except the message thread that you, me, Graham, and Angelina have that we've called close rads. <laughs> yeah, right. The the, the private one. Yeah, close exactly. rods. Close rods. Yeah. Well, okay. So, so um, next next book we're going to be doing like, well, let me say this. Like I said, we're going to do a, a year in review type thing for 2017, where we'll kick off 2018, and then after that, we're going to jump into Howard Zinn, the Enforcer's novel. So, you got a couple weeks to get going. And on I that. presume you'll post some kind of reading I'll, schedule for that. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll confer with the two of you to get. Um, to approve a reading schedule, and then we'll get I that I can posted. commit to 10 pages a week. How about you, Tim? <laughs> Easily. Easily. Are we good? We're each good for 10 pages a week, David. How, close, how will, closely do you want to read this? <laughs> I will see what that amounts to. Um, and then after that, we're going to do True Grit, so get those, get those books uh, as you're... You know, as you're able. Okay, I'm I'm geekily excited to do True Get. This will be my first Western. I'm I'm excited. Oh, I and I just reread it again um, to conf, you know to confirm that it would work and everything. And I, so that made me excited to talk about it. You're gonna, I think you're really gonna like it, Angelina. There's a lot of uh, great archetypal stuff in there um, that I think you're gonna. And there's a couple good gunfights as well. So how can you possibly? I'm go excited. Wrong? I'm ex- I'm actually excited <laughs> about this. I've never really had a thing for cowboys. That's not like a romantic thing for me. So we're going to have to see. Well, that works out because the main character is a woman and the cowboys are all kind of not what you'd think of as far as cowboys. Um, all right. So awesome. So um, thanks to everyone who's been contributing to Patreon the last several months. It's been awesome to to have that support um, and it really makes these shows Thank you. possible. So you can... Um, if you haven't received your things and you've your gifts and you have uh, donated in December, those will be going out uh, the first of January uh, per Patreon's kind of policies and rules. And um, if you have any questions about that, you can always email me or find me on Facebook, and I will answer your questions as quickly as possible. But truly, thank you for listening this year. Uh, 2017 has been a great year for Close Reads, and that is um, because of our listeners, because of you, uh, your conversation, your comments. Um, and the community that's come out of it. it otherwise it would just be three people talking about books which would be fine but it wouldn't be the same thing we would now. still do it if we didn't right. have an audience but you guys right. make it so much more fun <laughs> if there were like a hundred of you we'd still do it but having thousands of you makes i do this by myself in my bedroom once a week even when you guys aren't here with me so you know <laughs> that, no, that, no, that needs to be recorded um it takes no encouragement <laughs> All right, well, for Angelina Stanford, for Tim McIntosh, and for all of us here at the Cersei Institute, thank you so much for listening. This has been Close Reads. Uh, Happy New Year, and we will talk to you in 2018.